You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. For those of you who are new to Citizens, or maybe you're a guest here with us, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse over the last number of months. This is actually our 28th sermon in the Gospel of Mark, so we have slowly been going through it. And just so you know, especially for you regulars, we're actually going to take a little pause here on Mark, okay? So after today, we're taking a pause on Mark. Next week, we are headed total different turn. We're going into the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, okay? We're going Old Testament for a while, for a few weeks. And if you have ever had a moment where you have asked why God Why are you doing this in my life? Or God, why are you doing this in the world around me? Um, The book of Habakkuk is your book. It's a book about a prophet who is questioning God. And the answers may surprise us as we take a few weeks to look at this kind of dialogue between God and the prophet and the answers and the questions that go back and forth. Okay, so we'll be doing that starting next week, the book of Habakkuk. So I'm guessing most of you haven't read that book recently. If you haven't, it's short. You could read it this week, okay? Or at least get some practice finding it because it's actually kind of tricky to find it. It's really small. So if you have a a Bible, please uh, open it on your phone or if you have a physical Bible with you. And we're going to look again. We're going to go through uh, this passage verse by verse and see what God has to teach us this morning. I've been listening to a podcast lately called Ukraine Cast, and it's been covering the conflict in Ukraine um, basically Monday through Friday, doing different interviews, kind of, you know, getting insight into the war and all the efforts around it, and it's been really interesting. And the other week, there was one episode that talked about, you know, some really terrible event that happened, but then they, they went into an explanation about how they determine what is actually truth. Because there's a lot of disinformation that's out there. And so they actually have a team of the BBC staff led by Kay Devlin, who are the anti-disinformation unit. Okay, that's what they call them. And basically any story that comes into UkraineCast, this team does some research to determine Is this a real thing, or is this fake news, or what is this? And so they follow a process of four steps to determine, is this story really real? They will first get the story itself, and then they'll verify the events on the ground, usually using satellite imagery that's out there, to see if, okay, did this thing actually happen? Did this tank actually get blown up? You know, and they look on the most recent data from satellites to see if it's a reality. Then they'll do what they call reverse image searching. So they'll look on Google and they'll search the internet to see if this event possibly has happened in a different conflict and it's being confused for what's being talked about here. Then the third one is they'll interview journalists who just kind of broke the story itself, okay? The ones who were the first ones to bring it to light. But then Kay said the most powerful point is the fourth point, and that is the crucial element of eyewitnesses, people who were there, people who saw it. 
Step four really is the most crucial step of all the research they do. Can it be verified by somebody who was there? And as we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark, we have been studying a firsthand account. This is Peter's retelling of the story that he experienced and the things that he witnessed with his own eyes. And Mark now has recorded these things down for us to understand and to see and to take in. And so when it comes to Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection, it is, it is built on this solid evidence of people who were there and who saw it. Now we can debate whether or not they were, you know, slanted or if they had an agenda in their writing. All those things are validly debated, but what we can't debate is that these were eyewitnesses to the things that were seen and done, the things and the work of Jesus. And so this morning we're looking again in chapter 10 here at the work and the life of Jesus through the lens of Peter the witness and also Mark who records it. And just so you can kind of keep track with where we're going, we're going to look at this in three steps, okay? And it's going to look like this. What we need, what we want, and what we get, okay? What we need and what we want and what we get. Let's start with what we need. Look again at verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise. Jesus has been repeating this narrative to his disciples, trying to prepare them for what is coming, saying it over and over and over again of this. He's like, disciples, get this into your head. We're going to Jerusalem and what is awaiting me is my death. So he's trying to prepare them. He's, this is the third time now that he's saying this to them. Because the idea, and we've said this multiple times now, the idea of somebody that you know and love being, you know, beaten and dying on a cross is not an exciting thought. And one that they were not excited to take in. You know, I remember a number of years ago, this is way back actually where I went, uh, we were living in a region of the world that there was potential for hostage situations. And so we actually went and did some hostage training where they like prepare you for the potential of this happening. And so they blindfold you and they, uh, they might have even tied our hands together and they kind of like, they don't like physically assault you, but they kind of roughly move you around and they kind of like yell at you and belittle you, and even that, knowing that that scenario was completely fake, and it was just acting, it like is enough to get your heart racing. It's enough to make you nervous. And so here Jesus is preparing them, and he's saying, listen, 
Something really terrible is coming down the line for me. It is going to be a very difficult thing. And the disciples just are not taking this in. And so in chapter 8, he says it. And in chapter 9, he says it. And now here in chapter 10, he's saying it again for them. He's repeating this over and over and over again. Although this time, in the previous ones, he talks about dying. But this time, he gets more specific. Look there. What does he say in verse 34? He says, they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him. Man, Jesus gets like really specific and graphic. And the disciples, as they keep hearing this over and over and over again, are not really excited about the idea of their rabbi, their teacher, the one that they've been following, have these things happen to him. And so all along the way, just imagine for yourself, if somebody said some terrible thing was coming for you, you know, on Monday, probably the first thing in your mind or the first thing in my mind is like, how can I avoid that? But Jesus is saying, there's no way to avoid this. This is the road that I have chosen. This is the road that I am going down. And so the disciples are constantly asking this question, why does Jesus have to die? What's the reason for this? What's the answer to why is he doing this? Why can he not, if he's God, just sidestep this whole thing? And what we get from all of Scripture, actually, is that God has been working on a plan. God has been working on this moment for centuries and centuries. God created the world in this perfect state, in this beautiful state. It began in Genesis with God creating the world and everything that was in it, and it is, it was and still is glorious. In 1968, Apollo 11 went into space. Very few of you were alive at that time, okay? But this actually happened. Apollo 11 went in this, into space, and this was the first time that a spaceship went into space with people and it left the orbit of the earth and it actually entered into the orbit of the moon. So it was sent out there and it actually circled around the moon 10 times. Now these wouldn't be the astronauts who would actually get out and walk around on the moon, but they were the first ones to go. And, and as it happened, it was actually happening over Christmas and they were the first ones to do like this live like television show where people could see these guys in space in the spaceship. And there's one moment that the astronauts were blown away by. And it was the moment where they had the first experience of an earth rise, as they call it. Where when you're coming around the surface of the moon, from the dark side of the moon, you come up and what rises is not the sun, but it's actually the earth that rises up. And they, you can actually go on NASA's website and you can hear the audio recording. And hear the, the shock of this moment. And one of the astronauts grabbed a camera and took a shot, took this famous shot, which ended up being on Time magazine, the cover of that magazine, because they were so blown away by the beauty of the world. And on that transmission, they, they ended up getting sued for this, but they actually read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. You can see it on their website. They go through and they say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light and that it was good. 
And they went through and read all first 10 verses of Genesis 1 in awe of God's creative power. But yet along the way, in the story of the scriptures, we see that that beauty is broken. It's been marred as Adam and Eve, the first created beings, the the pinnacle of God's creation, these people, they broke their love relationship with God. And into the world came then this brokenness, this sin, this separation from God. In Romans, Paul takes basically three chapters to explain the extent of this brokenness, the extent of this sin. And let me just read a few verses from chapter 1 that kind of explain to us in really graphic ways what has happened as this beautiful creative relationship has broken. Genesis 1 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor God as honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts they were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And Paul goes on for multiple chapters, basically describing, here's what happens. Here is the result of this broken relationship between God and man, that we are not able to fully understand and perceive what God has actually done for us. Even though we are still able to, like, God has given us this ability to create and to to join him and to still enjoy the beauties of nature around us, we, because of this brokenness, still do not put two and two together. But in Genesis 3, God says, there is a promise for you. There is hope. You're not just left in this broken state. In Genesis 3.15, it says that, it's kind of like poetic language. He says, he will bruise your head and you will crush his heel. There's this image of a serpent and a man and there's a battle. And in the end, the man is bruised in the process, but the serpent is killed. And in that little poetic verse, God is saying, I am working out a rescue plan. There's a problem and there's going to be a death that comes from that problem. And this is what Jesus is like preparing the disciples for. God's working out his purposes. God's working out his plans. The, the brokenness of the world is, is going to be remedied. There is hope and it is in a person. It's in Jesus. But what do we want? Point number two, what do we want? And let's read these verses, just 35 through 38. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine that, parents? If your kids came up to you and they're like, Mom and Dad, we just have one thing that we want you to do, and we just want you to do whatever we ask you to do, okay? That's what these guys come up and say to Jesus. 
verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want to do? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. James and John, they are bold. Or maybe they're not so bold. Actually, in Matthew's gospel, it says that they got their mom to go ask them, okay? They got their mom to go ask Jesus, could, could my boys be one on your left, one on your right? Here, Mark says they did it. So maybe this was like multiple times they came up to Jesus, who knows, where they're asking, okay, Jesus, we've got a brilliant idea. We think we can rule with you left. It's kind of comical, but at the same time, when you read this, I think the point of Mark's recording of this is not necessarily so that we can just laugh at James and John, but it's actually to recognize that we often think that we have really great ideas. We often think that God's way in our life is not the right way, and we probably have a better way that God could accomplish his purposes. You see, the world tells us, and our own hearts tell us, find some sort of answer. Find some sort of solution. The world tells us, like, look inside yourself and see, you know, what is the best version of your do on the spot there. They're trying to figure out a way to make God's plans come to be, but it's using their own ideas. A number of years ago, I read um, Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Steve Jobs. I don't know if anybody has read that one before. It's super thick. Um, it tells about the, the life of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computer, and then all the way up to his death. He died from pancreatic cancer. And Walter did a number of interviews with Steve Jobs near the end of his life to just kind of understand him more and get his insight. And Steve knew that Walter was going to write this book. And so they were having lots of interviews. And near the end of his life, close to when he was almost about to die, um, Steve and Walter were talking about the afterlife. And they were talking about what was going to happen. And Steve was trying to figure this out, right? He's a, a brilliant um, founder of a company. He's a technology guy. So he's trying to find a solution and Steve told Walter, he said, you know, basically, I'm 50-50 on believing in God. Okay, it was kind of like it could go either way. Because in Steve's mind, he thought there has got to be some sort of purpose to the experiences that we have, the life that we live, the wisdom that we gain in life, that's got to be used for something, some sort of purpose behind all of these things. Steve Jobs goes on to say this, this is in the middle of their conversation. Steve, or he, fell silent for a very long time. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch, he said. Click, and you're gone. Then he paused again and smiled slightly. Maybe that's why I never like to put an on-off switch on Apple devices. Steve is just trying to figure out in the moment there, what is the right answer? What happens in life after death? What happens and what is the purpose of life in general? Who knows the answers to those things? Is it the culture around me that has the answer? Is it me in, inside here in this little brain that's fitting in this skull? 
Like, where am I to find the answers to the purposes of life and to reality and to what is truth? And for Steve Jobs, near the end of his life, he is doing that sort of mental wrestling and trying to figure out what's the right answer. Is it just click and you're off? Or is there more to it than that? James and John were coming to Jesus here and saying, we have a theory here on how this should work. We have a theory on how we play into the kingdom of God coming into being. We think we should be on the left hand and the right hand side. You do your thing. And so do you have something that you bring to God's equation for the kingdom of God as well? I'm pretty sure I could say that 100% of us do. And the question is, is it the right one? Or have we made our own storyline something that's convenient for us? Look at what Jesus says to them in his amazingly gracious answer. Verse 39, he says this, and they, sorry, let's read verse 38 quickly. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, it doesn't say why. Maybe they were mad that they thought of it first, right, to ask Jesus that question. I don't know. It doesn't say that. But the other disciples were mad. Verse 42 says, And Jesus called then to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus is teaching on the way of the kingdom, and his road to the cross was totally something that they could not understand. And yet here he is graciously coming to them and saying, I don't think you have the greatest idea. And it's, it should be humbling for us because it reminds us that not all of our ideas are the greatest. Like God has given us a great capacity to do amazing things, to build structures or to make decisions or to do good things around the world. But not all of our ideas are the greatest ideas in the world. I mean, I can remember when I was a teenager— don't ask me why, but there was like, I was like in this fad of like putting Vaseline into my hair, okay? It was wanting like this greased look. Maybe it's still a look, okay? But putting Vaseline in my hair to grease it back, that wasn't a good idea, okay? It's really hard to get out. You have to do a lot of washing. Um, but that's a, like a youthful, immature decision that all of us make and have made. And it's easy to kind of see the folly behind that. But there's also decisions where we come to God's way and God's working in the world. And we think that our ideas are better than his. And Jesus is saying here to the disciples, you think that your way is better than my way. And he says, he uses these metaphors of a cup, which is a metaphor for the wrath of God. 
You'll see it in the Old Testament, and you'll see it in the book of Revelation. And then he uses the term baptism, which is this kind of this Greek idea of being fully immersed in, you know, the terror and the tragedy of what's going on around you. And Jesus says, you think you can enter into these things. You're going to. Your life is going to be filled with, like, difficulty and hardship, but you can't do what I'm about to do. To get that, like, primary spot in the kingdom of God comes by going through the depths of hell. And you can't do that, James and John. You weren't even made for that. So in their pride, Jesus is gently asking them to take a road of humility. Gently asking them to accept the will of God for their lives, to accept that their Savior will actually go to the cross. And in, the, in that moment, asking them to accept God's will for their life, to accept God's plan, which is easy when things are maybe going well, but it's really difficult when things are hard. Tim Keller puts it this way, but do you know, he writes, where constant worry comes from? It's rooted in an arrogance that assumes, I know the way my life has to go and God's not getting it right. Real humility means to relax. Real humility means to laugh at yourself. Real humility means to be self-critical. The cross brings that kind of humility into our lives. Jesus is saying, he's, he's trying to, like a, like a parent, is trying to win over their children. He's trying to gently bring the disciples around to the idea that this road of the cross is actually a provision of God. And rather than taking this prideful assumption of knowing what God is doing, he's saying, will you hold on to and take in this humble attitude that God actually knows better? Which brings us then to our... Last point, which is what we get. So we started with what we need and what God has been doing. God's been working out his plan and his purposes, and he's been doing things over time, and now it's come to Jesus. And then we discovered what we want, which is usually our own ideas. We usually bring to the table something that we think is actually the right way forward, and Jesus is gently trying to nudge the disciples toward his will for their lives. And he's also trying to nudge us towards God's will for our lives and to humbly accept that work. And then now he comes to verse 45, this, this simple single verse with massive implications for us. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, listen, I know you've got a plan. I know you've got ideas. But here's the actual plan. I am the one who is going to serve you. I'm going to be the one who's going to take that first step forward. I'm going to be the one who's going to go towards the cross I will also be the one who will ultimately raise from the dead and be glorified. If you look back all the way back to verse 34, he includes that, that there will be a resurrection. 
That it doesn't end just in defeat. There's hope in the language of Jesus. But now he says, everything that you've been waiting for, the, the culmination of all of God's work is actually in Jesus. Now many people struggle with the, the Bible and even there's, you know, lots of people say the Bible it just can't be like a real thing. It's got to be Jesus' followers just put it together and they, you know, they had their own ideas and they wrote this thing up. But stories like this remind me at least that this is based on like the truth and reality because it's too messy, right? It is too messy of a story for it to actually be made up. You'd think if these guys were making it up, they would not make themselves look so bad. The disciples themselves making really terrible decisions, looking like fools along the way, and yet it's all been included. And why is that? Because it's a real story. These are real events that happened. C.S. Lewis, the, the great thinker, put it this way, reality, in fact, is usually something that you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe in Christianity. It is a religion that you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel that we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. The problem is not simple, and the answer is not going to be simple either. Lewis is saying, man, this story is way too complicated. There are way too many twists and turns in this story. If it was just God saying, I'm going to come and boom, it's done. I don't need to worry about these disciples. I don't need to worry about people making bad choices. I'm just taking care of it. It's just moving along. I'm the God of the universe. Then maybe you're like, okay, someone, that's too clean. But if this is God coming into real history, into real time, then you know, okay, this is actually reality. God has actually been here with us because this story has so many twists and turns, so many unexpected things happen. And the most unexpected thing, the thing that the disciples still couldn't even get into their heads, the unexpected turn was that Jesus would be the one who would give his life. That Jesus would be the one that the rescue plan was actually going through. Jesus would be the one who would do the greatest act of self-giving for people, for his creation, for the ones that God has always wanted to be in full relationship with. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, would you be able to do an act like Jesus has done? We know that the greatest act of Love is to sacrifice yourself for another, right? To, even the world knows that. People that aren't even Christians, they recognize it. It makes the news still. When someone like risks their life for someone else, we know that it's one of the greatest acts of love. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I've asked myself a few times the question, would I be able to do that? Given the opportunity, would I be able to actually make the choice to sacrifice myself for the good of someone else. And maybe you would easily say, absolutely, I would do that. Or maybe you would be like, eh, maybe. The thing that's amazing about Jesus' step of self-sacrifice is that he took that step 
knowing his whole life that that was coming. He knew that that was the road that he was going down. For, for our question, the question of self-sacrifice is a theoretical question. That opportunity may come for you, but it's possible that it won't. Who knows what the odds are? Jesus knew day by day what was coming for him. Jesus knew that the cross was coming for him. The disciples, as they heard that, were like, maybe, but maybe we can like get past it somehow. And Jesus knew, this is what I'm going to do. This is God's rescue plan. It says here in verse 40, 45, sorry, yeah, 45, that he came to serve, and that also it says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom there is the Greek word lutron, which means to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. So it's a, it's a legal term that Jesus is saying, I've come to ransom you, to buy you back, to give you the freedom. Picture yourself in a courtroom. Picture someone then accusing you of guilt. Maybe it's right even before God the Father, judgment seat of God, and you're sitting there, and someone then is accusing you, and they, they say, okay, this person, they did all kinds of wrongs. They did, like, little, little things that were wrong, and maybe you're like, okay, they're, I'm not sweating so bad because they're just going over, like, the little white lies that I've told you know, the little times where I did a little bit of disobedience, just a little bit of stuff, and it's kind of like, it's sticking to you, but you're like, these aren't like the biggies. I'm glad about that, okay? They've just gone over the light things. But then the next thing is they start laying on, like, the things that you're maybe embarrassed about, the things that maybe you did that you're actually guilty about, the things that you did that maybe you're like, I didn't know anybody even knew those things. I was hoping nobody would ever know those things. And now you're, like, really starting to feel the weight of it. Then they pile on more, and they're like, here are the things that this person did that they didn't even know were wrong, or that they didn't even know that they did them. And so now you're like, you are drowning in your own, in the weight of your own brokenness and the weight of your own sin. It's into that kind of courtroom setting that Jesus enters in. And Mark here records that Jesus then is your ransom. He comes with his own certificate right up to the judge and says all that guilt, the white lies, all the innocent little things that we think are like kind of half sins, all the egregious sins, all those choices that we knew exactly what we were doing, all the forgotten sins, the things that we didn't even know about. Jesus said, I'm paying for all of those. It is a complete ransom, total freedom. Mark says, this is the plan. This is the rescue mission that God has been doing for centuries. It's all hinged on Jesus. And so this is why as Christians, Easter is the day for us. It's the day where we see that Jesus' death, his burial, and resurrection brings to, com to completion the work that God has been doing. It is all wrapped up in Jesus and in his work. And we as Christians now, and as people 
enter into a new relationship because we've been ransomed. We've been ransomed by Jesus. I love Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son, and maybe you've seen this painting before, looked at it. Uh, I've never seen it in person, uh, but it's just a beautiful painting that captures the story of the prodigal son from Luke's gospel. And if you're familiar with that story, or if you're not, it's a story about a family, and specifically about a father with two sons. And one son, you can see here kneeling, just chooses outright rebellion, right? He's like, Dad, give me my inheritance. I'll take it all now. I just want to live my own life away from you. And so he's rebellious, and he goes and does his own thing, just totally blatant. And then in the process, his life just unravels, and it falls apart. And he finally says, okay, I think I, I just need to go back and beg to be a house help in my father's household. At least I'll know that I'll get some bread to eat every day. And so Rembrandt captures this image of this son, rebellious son, coming back. But he also captures the image of the son to the right of the father. The upright, the, the son who's continually there, who's not openly and blatantly rebellious, but throughout the story we see he's actually inwardly rebellious. His heart is just as hard as his openly rebellious brother. And he's in the home of his father his whole life. And in the story, the father has been inviting him and, and continues to invite him in, and his heart is actually hardened. The one thing that Rembrandt captures, which is something for all of us to take in, is the act of the Father, the act of the embrace. And in this case, it's the embrace of the filthy, beggarly, homeless son. But Luke's gospel is trying to capture for us the heart of God, the embrace of God. Whether you here today are feeling like you're the rebellious son, you're just choosing your own way, blatant, maybe even proud of it, you're just doing your own thing, or whether you are on the side of the religious son who you're kind of following along, you're kind of playing the part, you're looking like it, but inwardly actually your heart is just as hard as the other brother. In both cases, this morning is to remind each of us, wherever, wherever we land on that story, that God's embrace is waiting for us. And if you're a Christian, you can experience the embrace of God today. And the story of the prodigal son is a reminder that no matter running away, or staying near, God's open arms and his embrace is there. He has paid the debt. He has died and he has been buried and he has risen to life for us. We are his rescue mission. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. Thank you for the resurrection and for... The fact that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can experience uh, Jesus and his healing power and his loving embrace. And uh, Lord, I just pray that this morning that we would sense that in a new way. And even 
the remainder of this weekend, Lord, that we would come to understand and to know and even to feel the presence of Jesus around us and in us. And Lord, I pray that if we haven't put our trust and our hope in him, that we would do that today and enter into his will for our lives. Lord, may your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen.